Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we celebrate stories of resilience. It's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. I'm excited today with a, to join a, a former competitor, a former teammate, Bob Molinati, two-time Paralympian, two-time winner of the LA Marathon. He hosted a television show called In Pursuit for eight years on ESPN. And, you know, Bob, as I was, we're actually, welcome, Bob. Thank you hey, for thanks, joining Chris. us. Chris. It's really good to see you after all these years. It is, it is. We are a little bit grayer than we were the last time. I think a little is an understatement on this side of town, buddy. <laughs> exactly. We'll hope that the, that the fly doesn't, doesn't land on your head there. <laughs> Just to give you a little Mike Pence reference. Yeah, anyway, yeah, I but, know. Um, as, as I was going through, uh, as I was going through your stuff, you won LA in 84. You won LA in 88. But in 90, you went into the booth to talk about the marathon. And you said that this will do more for you than all of your racing ever could. What, what did you mean by that? And why? Well, you know, it was kind of interesting, Chris, you know, it, it, it came on the heels of, uh, of actually losing to Kanab in 89. So 88, I win, I, and then I go to Seoul and have a disastrous Paralympics and, you know, lick my wounds, you know, get through that, toe the line with Kanab in, in 89, and he beats me by three seconds. And um, I don't know, it was just kind of, it was that moment in time when I sort of figured out that it was time to try something new. And I had gotten the call from, from the people up in LA the year before, but I wasn't ready to kind of hang up the athletics. But um, I don't know, it was just, I, I saw it as, as, as for me, a time to keep racing, but at the same time to move on, but also to share my experiences. And um, I, I felt like I could be a good voice for our community. That's what I took out of it was the idea of the voice and why, why was the voice so, so important? Because I think some of it, you, you started at a time when things were just blowing up, right? I mean, in, in the wheelchair world. Well, exactly. I mean, the, the fields were getting bigger and bigger. Uh, more alternative sports were starting to come out. It wasn't just racing and basketball. You know, we were starting to see many, many more alternative sports. You know, tennis was, was blossoming, rugby or murder ball at the time. There were just so many opportunities and things that were happening within our sports world. And I, I just... I just felt like, you know, from my perspective that we weren't really getting the right kind of coverage. We were still talking about and writing about the same things over and over and over again. And, uh, and what do you mean by the same things? Well, the same things, you know, and this is like no cut on sport and spoke or, you know, that was our industry magazine. It's just that things got a little too, um, filtered and sensitive you know we got to the point where we were just we were talking about the event you know oh it was a nice day and everybody had a good time and this guy won the race and then we ate a burger and it was like man you know there's so much more intensity to 
you know, what it is that we bring to the table. And I wanted people to, you know, I guess what I was trying to do is get people to recognize that the focus that we had and the amount of work that we did and, and what we put into, you know, towing the line on, on a given Sunday was a lot of hard work, a lot of dedication, a lot of pain, a lot of strife. I mean, we put a lot into it and I wanted people to get an opportunity to see that and feel that. I felt like I could bring that to the table. And, and so in, in some ways it is, you know, it's going from being, you know, sort of a, an event to a competition. And, and do you feel like, did you feel a responsibility in some ways to be able to connect with the audience so that they could connect with the competitor, that they could see themselves in the competitor? I think so. And it, and it was a battle for me every day. And every time I, you know, picked up the microphone, because many of the producers, uh, you know, that I started to work for early on were, you know, they, they were, they, they were only encouraging of trying to keep things pretty low key. Example, the first year in LA, uh, the guy I worked for, he, he really wanted to do something with the chairs, but he couldn't quite figure out how to do it. So he mixed me into the booth in the beginning, you know, we did an opening show. And then the day of the marathon, he had me just working the start finish line. So I would do interviews, you know, I interviewed Kanab before he took off, you know, and then I interviewed him at the end when he invariably won the race. He was so dominant at the time. Uh, but it, you know, it, it just, it was still running a status quo. No one was really picking up on where this could go yet. And I don't think that I really knew where it could go. You know, like there, there, there was another whole step I needed to get to in order to be able to do that, you know, because as you know, doing this, it's, this is a craft. Um, it's, it's not something you learn overnight. You know, the first time you pick up a microphone and you get in front of, you know, uh, a, a television camera and the red light comes on, sometimes you're lucky if you get something out, you don't even remember what the heck it was, you know, you just got it out. So, no, that's, that's exactly it. That is the hardest part is being able to have the proficiency to tell the story, but also then the idea of what the story was. You, so, so we were talking about this before we went on, that, that you grew up in Vermont, then went into the military, into the army, and had a, had a car accident in the army, which is what put you in, into the chair, right? Yeah. But it, it seems like it's kind of interesting from the outside to see, because you're talking about Jim Kanab, who is who is from Long Beach, or went to Long Beach State, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we've talked to Candace Cable on this, who went to Long Beach State as well. And, and then you did. You weren't there at the same time that they were, were you? Uh, no, no. Uh, actually, I was just... I I was just a little past them and uh, you know, they, they were, they were laying the groundwork. Now, you know, Jim, Jim was a tough guy. He, he wasn't uh, willing to give uh, tips and information out too easily. And, uh, and he, he, you know, I, I admired Jim. I really did. I mean, I, I admired what he did and how fast he went and how hard he went, but Candace, on the other hand, Candace, and at the time she was married to, uh, Peter Brooks, 
and uh, and Pete and Candace both lived in Huntington Beach, which, which was where I lived, and they were very instrumental in kicking me forward. I, I had, you know, an archaic racing wheelchair. I had very little idea of what what I could do with this thing. You know, the only thing I brought to the table was uh, I was a decent cross country runner in, in high school. And so I understood the nature of training and intervals and things like that, but I had no real knowledge of the, the mechanics, the machine, the racing wheelchair. And those guys were eons beyond where I was. So they, they were able to take me, you know, in their arms and, and show me, hey, you know, you need this size hand rim, you need this type of wheel and this type of, of tire and, uh, and the cage you're sitting in is too big. And they, they just helped me, they, they pushed me two years ahead instantaneously. Well, you've seen such an evolution in, in the technology of racing chairs, right? I mean, you started at a time where it was kind of like, it was kind of like you're working on your hot rod in your garage, right? Where you're just taking this piece off of that, off of this chair and putting something else on it and widening the camber or, or widening the seat or tipping the seat. What was your first chair like? Can you describe your first racing wheelchair? Oh my God, I was just thinking of uh, the chair that Peter Brooks helped me build. I, I've spray painted it with a can of Krylon, all right? <laughs> you know, I had the old Rust-Oleum out, you know? I changed the color like every two weeks. Uh, no, my my first chair, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this the other day because I, I, I still have this guy's card, you know, like in a big collage I've got. But I met this, uh, I met a quad racer at Cal State Long Beach. He and I were both taking a computer class at the time. And he had this real piece of crap rattle box, you know, chair. I don't even, I don't even know how to describe it, Chris. It's some of that stuff you see on the history of wheelchair racing site with, and, but I mean, he let me borrow this chair cause he had an injury and I was, I was so hooked. Um, but I still didn't know what I was doing when he wanted the chair back. Um, do you remember the company Quadra? I remember hearing about it. And actually, you know what? I think I might have done my first race in a borrowed quadra. All right. So like the I, little steering things on the on the casters. Exactly. No, no tie rod, you know, the chair barely went straight down the road. Well, that's what I bought because I didn't know. I mean, I just didn't know. I didn't know anything about it. So yeah, I went out and immediately squandered, you know, two thousand bucks. Uh, buying, you know, this chair and it, it lasted a very short time because I mean, I athletically outgrew this chair instantaneously. So yeah. And then chair two was the one that was built by uh, Pete and Candace and uh, they, you know, they, they really bumped me way ahead. But Candace, when I talked to Candace, she was talking about it being a real community. That when she, when she went to school there, she joined a community that suddenly she went from being the one person in the wheelchair to having a group of people. And you were in California. I mean, I, I was in Vermont and I really still was the only person that I encountered in most of Vermont. But in, but in California, it seemed like you had more of a community and more of a racing community. Was that part of what you were trying to communicate when you were doing when you were doing your commentary, when you started moving from racing into commentary in terms of like, what was, what made it great? 
Well, I, no, I, I think, I think so. I mean, I, I always tried to, uh, you know, emphasize to people that California was a hotbed of activity for, you know, for the, the person who had a disability who wanted to move on. I mean, we, we had many more opportunities. Uh, you know, I, I, I tried a semester at, uh, at University of Vermont. It was tough. You know, I mean, you know, Vermont was built, you know, we're talking Ethan Allen, you know, revolution, you know, they, that and that snow. was not, <laughs> yeah, and snow, it's not an adaptable environment. And, and, you know, God bless anybody who chooses to live a whole life in a wheelchair there. But no, California, like I knew right away, I started to meet more and more people who were uh, attempting to be active in their 20s and to do, you know, things that were, you know, forward thinking. And, uh, and I, I don't think, I, I don't think I would have had that opportunity in Vermont. And it was, it was, it's funny because I, I was, um, I was actually the, the first wheelchair athlete to appear in the sports page of the Orange County Register. They did a big, a big spread on me in 88 big, you know, pictures, back page, the whole deal. And uh, the reporter came out to the house to do the interview. And I remember saying something along, you know, she's like, well, what would life have been like in Vermont? I said, I, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, I would have had my 2.2 children and, you know, and had a job and, and, you know, and that probably would have been it. And I, and I felt so bad because when it was printed, I, I called my dad. I'm like, you know, I don't want you to think like I just, you know, reamed Vermont, like Vermont's a terrible place. I, I said something and it was a little out of context. But the bottom line, Chris, is that California provides us people with disabilities way more opportunities, if for no other reason, just for the geographical nature. Fair enough. Now, I, I, I'm partially remembering a story where, where you said something that might've been out of context. So you, you did LA a couple of times. And now one time, didn't you say that you were going to win? Did it end up on a billboard or something? Or how, what was, what was this story? <laughs> I, I did say that. And, uh, and you know what, fortunately I did, but you know, re realistically, Chris, I mean, I know where I sit in history. You know, I know, I know how good some of the people are who are coming up on my heels. And I also knew how lucky I was. I, I, I was fast at the time. And, and I knew, you know, I looked at the field, you know, before the paper came out to the house to interview me. And I mean, I knew I had a one in five shot of winning this race. And so, yeah, I made a very bold, brash statement, and thankfully it paid off. But, you know, for, for every one of those wins, I've also had a loss. And uh, so, yeah, you know, may, maybe, maybe, that was, uh, maybe that was a positive thing for our community, too. And, I, you know, I think in some ways, like, my brashness is what helped me to be able to pick up a microphone and be on TV. I mean, how... How dare I have the confidence to sit in a booth at NBC or or toe the line with ABC in Boston with a helicopter thumping overhead? I mean, you know, some of that comes. You you know this. I mean, you you've been there. When the red light comes on, you got to be bold. You do. You've got to be bold, and you've got to be interesting, right? Right. 
where you don't get hired anymore. Not only do you not get hired, but you get embarrassed. And, uh, and you know, ah, geez, Chris, I mean, had so many experiences, but boy, I remember, uh, you know, 2000, you were still racing, you know, Australia, Sydney, big games. And um, it was decided that I was going to be the guy in the stadium. So, uh, you know, we're getting ready to go on and, you know, producers talking in my IFB and he's like, all right, Bob, we're to come down to you. Well, the, the stadium is packed. I mean, there, there are, you know, I don't know, 80,000 people in the stadium and the Australian team is getting ready to, to roll out on the track and simultaneously he throws to me and, uh, you know, you got to be ready for a moment like that. That's not a spot you want to put a rookie in. And you pulled it off. I, I pulled it off. I did. And uh, I felt pretty darn good about it, too. So how does that compare? I mean, back to the, sort of the initial quote where you thought that that being on television or be, doing the commentary would be able to do more for you and, and really probably more for the sport than your racing. How do you compare those kind of moments? Does that compare that kind of a moment when the Australian team is coming into the stadium? How does that compare to winning the LA Marathon? How does that compare to some of your greatest races? Oof, you know, I I don't know. For for me, Chris, I think that that when I entered broadcast, it was it was much bigger for me. I I mean, I recognized that I couldn't go on with the racing forever uh, that, that, uh, that it was going to, it was going to be big for me personally. And though I was eager and pleased to be able to do so much for our community at the same time, you know, I, I was, I was ready to move on. I I was 30 at the time, you know, this is, you know, you know, go or get off the pot time, you know, I mean, it's like, I, I got, I got to make a move here and, uh, and opportunities were starting to arise. And through those opportunities, those, those, those meager little starting opportunities to go sit on a start line and interview a couple of people, that's how, you know, I jumped into, you know, the opportunity with the ESPN job. I mean, it, I, I just, I, I feel like um, what I brought to the table enhanced our community. And that's what I meant by saying it was important for me to do what it was that I could do. Uh, and it's just growth for all no, I'm with you hundred percent because we we've been on the inside, right? I mean, being on the inside, you get an opportunity to, to see the characters, mm-hmm. to see the work, to see the execution uh, and, and appreciate that, appreciate the athletes and to be able to communicate to other people and to be able to point them in the right direction to say, this is what you want to watch. This is what will differentiate this person from that person. How did, how did you go from LA doing the marathon, doing, you know, where you said you were, you, you were partially your start and finish. And, you know, they're like, okay, well, we got that guy in there and that's fine. And, but how did you go from that to what, what's the progression? How do you, cause it's, it's not predictable. Right? How does how does that work? Does somebody see you, or how does that, how does that work? It's it's so it was so evolutionary. It really was, and a lot of it was that <clears throat> I was a pretty good self promoter too. Um, but the way it really went down was uh, 
Tony Revis, who was the co-host with me on In Pursuit, the ESPN show, he, he and um, producer Rich Jane, who, who I worked with for many years, they, uh, they brought me on board to do a little color commentary for the, uh, the mobile or the Tom Sullivan race at the time, which was a week after LA. And I had, you know, just enough talent and, and time that they saw that they could maybe integrate me into a few shows and thus the spinoff that, I mean, it's a, it's, it's just interesting how, how life works. You can't, you can't always predict it, but that was, uh, that was a big jump off point. Um, they brought me, they brought me in. I did a little guest commentating for, you know, the, the blurbs, the eight minute pieces that we were doing. And, you know, you know, Chris, sometimes things are so coincidental. So the very first time they come out to, to the mobile race, which at the time was Tom Sullivan, and they're covering the chairs, there was this radical hairpin turn. And Scott Hollenbeck was going around it and took out like four races, racers that were like, ah, you know, there's metal and stuff scraping and people upside down. And they loved it. Uh, Rich, uh, Jane brought it back to uh, Elite Racing at the time and uh, pitched it to the guy who owned the company and uh, he liked the idea and Tom Ferran who was working for ITT Hartford at the time right. he and I spoke I sent him a tape I went down and pitched we sold the show boom we had a show on on ESPN so a lot of coincidental stuff had to come together to make that happen can you explain who, who Tom Sullivan is too? Tom, Tom Sullivan was actually, he was a blind actor and, uh, and he uh, had a nonprofit that he was working with called Vistas for Blind Children. And when I was working for the LA Marathon, I actually uh, hooked up with uh, a, a really great woman who organized LA for a lot of years, Nan Harmon. And uh, Nan, Nan did a fabulous job. I mean, she, uh, at the point where, uh, you know, I was helping to organize the field and I had to start to move into my TV role, Nan took over my job. And Nan was, you know, just supreme at organization. So we started to kind of coordinate our efforts to the point where we were bringing LA and Sullivan into the mix together. I don't remember exactly how Tom Sullivan became mobile, but uh, that race just went on forever and ever. And, and it was such a great mix because we already had, you know, we already had 80, 100 wheelchairs in town. It was easier to keep them here for a week than it was to send them home and bring them back. Right. And so it's March. And, and for a lot of the rest of the country or a lot of the rest of the world, it's not all that warm, right? And you go to exactly. LA, I think the last time I did LA, it was 80 degrees, which was a bit of a shock because I hadn't, I hadn't even trained outdoors, you know, and you go from, from your roller to being outdoors and it's 80 degrees and you're thinking this is really hot, but, but it was nice and, and it was nice to be able to spend, I think I did it a couple of times where you spend a week, get some training in, see your buddies, go race down in Torrance and, and that, that two lap, I mean, at least the last time I did it, it was that two lap. That's right. The, the criterium. Yeah. 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 And, and, and Nan was, uh, you know, she was just such a, a supreme organizer and such a good lady. Um, she's worked, 
she worked so hard to keep everybody in town. I, I kind of remember like she had organized uh, or arranged for some like really, really inexpensive hotel room rates in like the Venice Beach area, you know, so how cool for the guys, you know, you, you come in from, you know, like you said, cold climates, other countries, and you put them on, put them on the boardwalk in Venice Beach. How much fun is that? It, it is perfect. I mean, I, I think that a lot of people probably didn't want to leave, right? It's warm. It's great training. You're there with your buddies. Like, let's stay here for a long time. It's funny that you mentioned Scott Hollenbeck, too, in that race that, that Scott had crashed because I had talked to Scott and Scott said that his first racing wheelchair was one of your old chairs that his it grandfather <laughs> bought secondhand. That is so funny because uh, it was actually the chair that Pete and Candace built for me. And uh, yeah, so, you know, I mean, this is back in the landline day, you know, phone rings, you know, wall, the, you know, the phone's on the kitchen wall. I go over and pick it up and it's this kid, Scott Hollenbeck. Oh, hey, man, you know, you know, Scott, you like to, Scott likes to laugh, you know, he's like, hey, I got, you know, and he's all of like probably 17 at the time. I got, I, I got, it just got hurt. I need a chair. I'm like, Hey man, I'll, you know, great. I think I sold him the chair for like 500 bucks, you know, and he was thrilled, but I mean, Scott, he moved on fast. I mean, he, you know, he asked me a couple of few questions, but you know, for him, you know, I think, uh, I think when Scotty went to, uh, to U of I university of Illinois and got under that, that tutelage of, you know, Marty Morris and, Brad Hedrick and and you know being a part of that that legacy that was that was you know that was another big jump for us Chris you know that was the place where academics were meeting athletics and they were you know I loved what they did at U of I because they made them up uphold a standard they had to you know they had to pass their classes to go to the race it wasn't just you can be a racer and mixing those academics gave them a chance to move on in life. How important is that, that history, those stepping stones, those, those programs that, that really define one step and then, and then there's a subsequent step? How important is that to you? Well, I, I think it's everything. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's not a matter of, you know, do does everybody need to get an advanced education? Not necessarily so, but I think it definitely helps our community. I mean, for, you know, for, for us to be able to articulate ourselves in the way that, that we do and to present ourselves in the way we do, it only really ups us in our game and it makes us look sharper and better. And then we don't have to, maybe maybe the next generation after us, Chris, won't have to have that conversation about inspiration all the time. You know, maybe, maybe they're just gonna be recognized as someone who, you know, I mean, I'll be at the wheelchair. They are also very competent people and we don't have to keep having the same discussion. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just funny, man, I, I mean, you know, I, I, I like to read. I read a lot of books and I remember, uh, remember John Hockenberry? Mm -hmm. yeah. John, John was, he, he was earlier than us and he was, uh, you know, quite a good journalist. And uh, I remember a story he told about when he was working at NPR and it was news time 
and they were in the shuffle, the big last push. And he was running down the hallway, you know, racing down, trying to get some copy into the booth or something. And, and one of the workers there uh, who thought he was being really cute with him used to do this thing where he pulled up the bolt cape and said, Ole, as he would go down the hallway. And he said something to John one day along the lines of, uh, you know, I bet nobody else does really cool stuff like that with you. And he's like, no, it's only you. And the guy didn't recognize that he was kind of like, kind of bad, poking fun at him for, you know, being what he was. But, but that's the point is, you know, so we, we've all had to deal with a certain amount of condescending attitude at times. And here's the moral of the story. I think by being smarter, sharper, and more articulate, we take that away, that, that chance away from, from people. Well, it, it's interesting because you're talking about like, I mean, you came up as a racer or you started as a racer and then moved into television. And it seems like I'm reading between the lines to a certain extent, but it seems like television represented more integration than did racing. Am I right in saying that? I, I, I would say so. And uh, in some of the jobs, uh, uh, more so than others, um, LA, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's real interesting. I had such a love-hate relationship with uh, the producer in LA. I worked for multiple producers in LA because it changed hands more than one time. I did, I did that show from the start finish line I did that show from inside a studio, you know, in, in my suit. And I did that show from the back of a motorcycle. So I called it in many different ways. And one of the producers I worked for, I mean, he, he was the very first guy who ever hired me. His name was Phil Olsman. Tough guy. I mean, he, he never really cut me any slack and, and uh, that was good. I mean, it was tough in the beginning because I was scared of him. I mean, like this guy was a tough guy. He was LA, you know? Uh, so Phil decides after many years of me sitting around on the sidelines, he's like, Bob, he said, you know, you know, you know, the stuff we should put you on the bike. You know, if we're putting the, the men's and the women's runners on a motorcycle to call a race, why aren't we going to do the chairs? I'm like, Hey man, we'll give it a shot. So it's, uh, um, it was really interesting. Hold on. Hold on. What are the logistics of getting you onto a motorcycle? This is the, this is the first question, right? Cause you're, you're basically in front of the racers looking backwards, right? Which is not necessarily the easiest thing for you to do. Oh man. It was, it was way more than that. It was, so it's not even on necessarily on the back. So they had to build me a little like soundstage. I wish I would have sent you a pic of this because I've got one pic of it. It was, it's about send the it size to us afterwards. My, we'll, yeah. we'll edit it in. Yeah. Cool. It's about the size of my desk. And, uh, it was a little tiny cage and inside this cage was me and a cameraman with a full, you know, full blown camera pack and a guy driving a motorcycle. I mean, it was, 
And, and so they pick me up and put me in there and I'm sitting on a little stool like this would be illegal today. You know, no seatbelt, no nothing, you know, paraplegic guy. I think I, I think I taped my legs together with duct tape so they didn't fall off the side, you know? So uh, it's, it was loud. I mean, there's a lot of activity going on. You have, you've got the sound of the motorcycle, you've got the helicopters overhead with the, the satellite dish, you know, carrying the signal feed. You've got the, the racers going down the road and you've got, you know, the noise of the wind of the motorcycle going 25 miles an hour. And it was weird. Um, it got loud. I mean, there was just a lot of chaos there. And, uh, I got really spastic. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I don't I, you know. I, you know, I had notes and this and that, and I'm all over the place. So you, you know what an IFB is? You work in the okay. industry. You know, this is one loop communication between you and the booth. And the producer comes on, and like I said, he's a tough guy, but he always held me to a higher standard. And uh, he comes in my ear at the commercial break. And he says, Bob, he said, shut the F up and talk about what you know and stop all this crap. And he went off. I took all my notes. I tucked them away and I went to work. And uh, it was maybe maybe my proudest moment. I mean, I, I really I went to I went to work. I gave up all the contrived you know, expectations of what could happen. I just reacted to the race and talked about what I knew. And he helped me do that. Is reacting to the race easier when you're doing that in a commentary capacity than when you're doing it as a racer? Hmm. I think they kind of go hand in hand because you know, when you're, when you're in a race, I mean, you can have 10 expectations of what something might be like but man until you know you find out who you're racing with in the pack or what the weather conditions are going to be like or uh how rough is the road this year i mean did the rain beat it up i mean there's 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 a lot of things you know that's that's life chris i mean i mean if nothing else we learned life is about adapting to a, a situation and uh be, be it uh, you know racing a wheelchair or or doing commentary on a tv or speaking in front of a live audience i mean you've had i'm sure you've had situations where maybe the mic was a little bit hot and you were popping your peas and you know i mean you just you gotta adjust life is adjustment it, it is it is most definitely adjustment so the adjustment in working in the business, right? So you decide, this is what I want to do. I want to do some commentary. You have the LA Marathon, uh, which is one job. There, there are a lot of other days in the year other than that day that they host the LA Marathon. How were you working toward that goal of doing commentary in other places? Were you getting other jobs? It was, it was tough. Uh, I had... <clears throat> I had to convince producers and I didn't have, you know, I didn't have a public relations agency or anyone working for me, but, you know, I was pretty diligent and, um, you know, I, I just started to put my feelers out and, you know, working with the ESPN, having that little four letters behind my name, that worked pretty darn well for me. 
you know, that looks nice on the resume, but nonetheless still had to sell myself. And, uh, and I did, uh, I, you know, I had a great opportunity come to me through, actually it was through Rich, you know, Rich hooked me up with a producer in, in Peachtree. I had always wanted to call Peachtree. I recognized that that was a great 10K. So tell people what Peachtree is. Peachtree, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's the, the fastest, biggest 10K in, uh, in the nation. It's held on the 4th of July in Atlanta. The, uh, you know, the audience, the crowd, the feel of the city is, is just, it's, it's great. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful day, start to finish. Uh, but it was 60,000 people. Oh yeah. And, uh, and, and it was sponsored by the shepherd center and they did a, a great job putting together, you know, the, just the ultimate field for the summer. It was, it was just, it was the 10 K I mean, beyond winning a marathon, probably the next biggest race you could win would be the peach tree 10 K. So go ahead. Oh, no. And, and, and just with the wheelchair side of it, you started seven o'clock in the morning. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, and it's already 75 degrees. Right. It, but yeah, it, it was it was interesting. It, and the telecast down there, we, our call time was 430 in the morning. So we get down to Piedmont Park. You know, it's still dark. It, you know, they get us up on the stage. We do rehearsals, you know, all that. But it was it was just really interesting. Um, I think this, in a way, is an example of, you know, how how diligent I was about trying to get new jobs. So Richard introduced me just by, you know, phone number and quick phone call to the producer. And I sent the guy, you know, my resume and my, my demo tape. And, and, you know, I waited, you know, the requisite four days, hoping he might watch it. And uh, finally I called him and I called him and I called him and I just kept bugging him until he picked up the phone. And uh, so finally one day he picks up the phone and, uh, and he's like, man, he says, I, I saw your, your stuff and it looks really good. Now, whether he did or not, I don't know. But he said, uh, he said, I have no budget. I said, man, I said, you know, I mean, no budget. He says nothing. He says, I mean, like we are really low budget. And he says, I just can't do it. I can't bring you in. So hung up the phone and I sat at my desk and pined for about five minutes and I picked the phone back up and I got him on the horn. He picked up and I'm like, hey man, listen, I want nothing. I don't want a plane ticket. I don't want a hotel room. I don't want to rent a car. I don't want you to buy me a burger. I said, all I want you to do is offer to put me on stage. And he says, wow, he says, I can't turn that down. And uh, that's how I got Peachtree. It's funny, you're talking about the diligence, you know, and that's, that's such a huge part of it. But you're also, having been a racer, so much of your work as a racer was all the work you did before you showed up at the race. All the training, all the lifting, everything like that. How did that correspond to the work that you had to do in order to be prepared for being on stage, for being on camera? I, I did a lot. 
I, I always try, you know, the fortunate thing for, for, for me and with, especially in terms of, you know, just the racing aspect, you know, I did so, so many other types of shoots with ESPN, but with racing, you know, realistically, Chris, I knew when I looked at a field, I could see the, the one, one of five or six people who were going to win this race on both the male and the female side. And I prepped myself to know as much as I could know about those people. I typically knew what their characteristics were, whether they were good hill climbers or good downhillers or awesome sprinters or savvy racers or, you know, so I had things to talk about, you know, beyond, oh, you know, this guy and he got a gold medal at Barcelona. No, I knew more. It was like, you know, watch this guy, this guy, Ernst Van Dyke, who's, you know, rolling in third right now. He's there for a reason, but watch when he hits the downhill, he's going to put 20 meters on the pack. And when it happens, now all of a sudden, I look like a genius. But all I really ever knew, which was what you knew, and everybody else who raced is that Ernst Van Dyke could go downhill really fast. So, you know, prep, prep, prep. Well, you were current too. I mean, you were you were doing the television, but you were continuing to race. So, you know, part of your research was having been in a pack with these guys and you know, you, you know, you know what it feels like. I mean, that's, that's one of the hard things, right? Something can seem really easy when you're sitting there comment and talking about it on television. You're like, okay, well that, that guy should close that gap. It looks easy enough. And you're like, no, no, I've, I've been there. I know what it feels like to try to close that gap. It, exactly. And what I felt like, uh, you know, I was really trying to do, Chris, was really to try and bring the audience into the mix with the racer so that they could sort of start to feel what it was like to be there and to, you know, understand that 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 gap that you were talking about, that 10 meters, that that was not a closable gap. They're on the hill. It's over. It's done. You know, I mean, short of a flat tire, you know, the common person is looking at this going, oh, well, ooh, if this guy tries a little bit harder. No, there is no try a little bit harder. Everyone's everyone's hearts at 180 beats right now. There is no 190. So I, I tried to bring people into, you know, the experience and, and to even more than that, to try and get them to know these people a little bit. You know, it was exciting for me. I remember, you know, back to Peachtree, the year that Krieg Shabor won. You know, like he, he, he was the hometown guy, you know? So I tried to, you know, work really hard to make him an empirical part of the show because he's part of the community. It helps understanding and it helps people to understand how, how dedicated he was to as an athlete. Oh, and I mean, Craig was one of those guys who did exhaustive research as well, right? He was a guy who, who tested tires and wheels and everything and would go out onto that final hill because it's the same thing that you're talking about right you get the 10 meters on that on that uphill and then take the turn into piedmont park and you're going downhill and you're flying and and he was the guy who tested equipment over and over and over again to ensure that he would have the best chance on that on that downhill i was i went to your website earlier today and on your website you have you have a race from 99. You have the Carlsbad 5000 from, uh, from 
from 99, one of the fastest 5Ks in the world. And you had you had a, a group of colorful characters in there as well. I mean, you had you had Jeff Adams from Canada, <laughs> Scott Hollenbeck, whom we talked about as well, who is who is one of the greatest uh, greatest racers out there, one of the greatest American racers. Uh, Keith Davis, who is who was going really fast at that point. You had Krieg, who who one who a little bit later than that hit his hit his stride and was completely dominant. But wh- why did you decide you wanted to put that particular race on on your website? Well, that was actually one of the first. You know, R- Rich and I spoke a little bit about you know w- what we wanted to launch initially. You know, we've got so much material that I want to get up there, but we wanted to get you know the the, the audience that I'm most familiar with is the race group. And so, you know, I told Rich right off the bat when, while I'm trying to get this going and I'm reacquiring my writing chops again, um, let's work with what I know. And so he pulled up a couple of, you know, just really good road races. I I think I had LA up there and uh, which had an awesome sprint between Heinz Fry and and Saul Mendoza. I mean, you know, what a, what a great way to open a website. Right. And, uh, and yeah, that Carlsbad race. Oh man, that was, I, I watched that race more than one time. And, you know, if you watched it, you'll know, I mean, here's, you know, Krieg's going down the hill and here comes Jeff Adams. All Krieg had to do is move like three inches to his right. And he wins $10,000 and Jeff Adams is a wreck on a curb. And instead, Jeff Adams squeezed through this hole that was like, there couldn't have been more than two inches between their hand rims. They're going, you know, 23 miles an hour downhill full bore sprint you know that's exciting to me that you know for me uh, now I, I don't feel like i'm talking about disabled sports i feel like i'm talking about sports this is great sports it is and the characters and jeff is one of those guys who says repeatedly and part of it might be shtick but i believe most of it that he'd rather crash than lose so and a guy he, like and, Krieg, and, and he did once in a while. <laughs> he really did. And so Krieg being in front of him with knowing that Jeff's coming, he's like, do I want to close that door? Because this might be both of us on the tarmac if Jeff is coming. And so it's, it's part of the intimidation, which to me is great. And it also representative of, of our sport, right? Because I celebrate that. I mean, I think that that sounds great. There might be other people who think, that's totally crazy. That's irresponsible. I don't like that guy. And, and our sport gets elevated when you say, okay, well, that's a good guy. That's a bad guy. I mean, we grew up like watching Walt Disney, right? I mean, it's like Sunday nights, you're watching Walt Disney and the cowboy, you know, the cowboy Westerns or whatever. It's like white hat, the black hat. This is like that. They, they delineated it for us. Right. And it's, and it's cool when it's not just oh, you know, we can, we can cheer for everybody. It's like, no, no, I want to cheer for that guy. I don't want to cheer for this guy as much. And whoever that is, it's, it's great. Brings the personality into it. When you got into the ESPN, so you're, you're moving from road racing into a variety of other sports and you did in pursuit or a version of in pursuit because it went from breakaway to in pursuit, right? For, for eight years, effectively. Eight mm-hmm. years is a long time it was to long be time. on television how did you decide what you wanted to do and what your story was going to be 
a lot of times we had to look for bang for the buck, Chris. You know, if we went to, you know, for example, at the end of the year, we almost always shot the Honolulu Marathon because one, we could get it onto Tony's running show. And two, we had the Honolulu Marathon for ourselves. So at the same time, you know, Rich would call me up and we'd have, you know, a phone production meeting. You know, what else do you think we could shoot this year? And then we'd collectively get on the horn and look for things. And we would find, uh, you know, we found a, a, a guy who is like a really high-end disabled scuba diver. We found some other guy who was real into martial arts. I mean, we never knew exactly what we were going to find. You know, if we went to a ski event, we went to a ski event. We knew what we were going to find. But if we went to a place like, you know, I use Honolulu as an example because we often found really interesting stuff there. And, and this is kind of funny. Um, we went to Honolulu one year and we thought we had everything in the can. And uh, so we had worked real hard. We had shot the marathon. We had shot a couple other uh, pieces and uh, you know, Rich, Rich cut me loose. So I, uh, I called ironically, you know, Joey Hamilton who just recently passed away. Uh, I, I didn't know Joe that well, but he was one of the few guys left in town. I called him up and said, let's go drink some beers. So he and I went out and had a couple of beers and uh, a, cu a couple more than a couple of beers. And uh, I thought all I was doing was flying home tomorrow. Right. So uh, I wake up to a phone call at seven in the morning and it's rich. And he's like, hey, man, he says, uh, we're short. And I'm like, oh. like, how short? He said, a segment. And, you know, like we got to get back to San Diego. He has to edit it. And then we got to go down and Tony and I got to do the voiceover, the VO. And then it has to be all put together and it has to be shipped to ESPN. We don't have time to go find another piece. So he says, uh, you got any ideas? I said, I don't know, man, skydiving. He says, would you do it? I said, uh, sure. And I think it was only my hangover that allowed me to do that because it was never like my thing, you know, jump out of a per per perfectly good airplane, right? So I, uh, you know, he says, well, it would be interesting if we had somebody else. So I called Deanna Sotoma, who was one of the top women racers at the time. She had just won Honolulu. And, uh, and I said, hey, I said, well, pay for your ticket change and all that you want to go skydiving? And she said, oh yeah, it's my destiny. I'm like, well, let's go. So we get out to the airfield and, uh, and they, you know, slam us in this plane and it's a little tiny sardine can and we're up in the plane. And, uh, it was, it was kind of funny, you know, we're all going tandem, you know, so all you got to do is really like just fall out the door, you know, and uh, I look over at Deanna and this look on her face said it wasn't her destiny anymore. <laughs> and uh, I laughed and she, and, you know, we laugh about it. We communicate once in a while. We laugh about it to this day, but it was, it was kind of funny. Uh, you know, we, we did it. I was glad I did it. But that's an example of just how, you know, we worked to make pieces. If we didn't have a piece, we found a piece. We, we were just very, we were a small group. We were industrious. We worked hard. Um, when it came down to when we went to a city, we, we just did the, the requisite research to find the people and we found stories. We dug hard. We did some 
decent investigative journalism. Are there any that, that stick out in your memory? Because you've done, I mean, it's, it's about 100 pieces that you did, right? About 100 segments? I, I would say that or maybe more. Geez, I, I got a, a really good one. Um, Atlanta, 96. So we had, uh, we had run into a, a, a PR guy, you know, the guy who was running communications who was not very cooperative with us. I mean, we were really under the gun. We had planned a Paralympic special. That was going to be our deal for that show. And every day we'd go up to the office to find out what we could shoot. And the guy would tell us, you know, so we were, you know, it got down to we're having breakfast and Rich, uh, Rich says, you know, Bob, he says, if, you know, we got a show due at ESPN, he says, either we start shooting or we got to find something, we got to get on an airplane. And uh, so I, we went up to the office that day and uh, I said- What month man, is this? So is this during the Paralympics? This is oh, August, yeah. this is August of, of 96, okay. This is during the Paralympics. And so, you're competing. I, I was done. I, I was eliminated. I tried to go back and rectify something from 88 that was not correctable. And uh, I was, uh, I am, I unfortunately embarrassed our team, Chris. So uh, I don't think that's the case, Bob. Uh, I, well, let me get Rich on the horn. He'll tell you. Now, <laughs> we were always pretty good about busting each other's chops. But uh, anyway, I was done. And now we're trying to get a show in the can. And finally, it got down to the point where I just went in this guy's office. I'm like, hey, man, I said, what can we shoot? And he says, all right, anything but track and field, basketball, rugby, swimming, or tennis. I'm like, so what? He said, so like anything else. And uh, I mean, like seriously. So we go up into the, into the press room and we're all like filtering through whatever material we can. And uh, we find, this, this turned out to be so cool. Uh, we find, something it's called sit down volleyball and it's the gold medal match and we're like well let's give it a shot so that night we leave the lights of atlanta and we start driving out into like the rural countryside of of georgia to a high school gymnasium in the middle of nowhere and it's dark chris i mean we have left atlanta and uh, we're like, oh boy, you know, this could be, there could be like three people in here, you know? And uh, we open up the door. Did you know the- anything about sit down volleyball at that point? Uh, just enough to know basically it was going to be amputees. I mean, okay. I can't say we knew a lot, you know, this is before, you know, it wasn't like we could go back to the room, jump online, do some research. And, you know, I mean, this is dot matrix printer day, you know, 386s, you know. Um, so we go into this school building and head towards the gymnasium and we open the door and it is bedlam. It is Iraq versus Iran. And most everybody on that floor had lost a limb to the other country in war. And it was cowbells and 
I mean, like, I can't, it's, it was like, it was a gold mine. We looked at each other like, oh, score, you know, this is going to be our piece. And that's, that's kind of an example of how it was that we worked. Like, sometimes it was a win and sometimes it wasn't. But this was just pure gold, man. We, uh, you know, we, we made something good out of nothing. And, and I mean, the, the piece itself, I mean, it wasn't nothing. I mean, we just didn't, we had no idea what we were going into and it just turned out to be just pure gold. Do you remember who won? I don't, you know, that's, a, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to ask Rich to get that piece, uh, you know, up in it and, and uh, sent up to me and I'm going to get it on the site soon. And uh, it'll be really interesting. I mean, that was 96. Uh, I was 38 and now I'm older. <laughs> but, uh, I, but I do remember it being a fantastic piece. What was the end of that game like? Because that's what I mean, you're talking about people who've lost limbs to the other country in war. What, what was the end of the, the game like? How is sport different than war potentially? You know, my... My memory of it is that there was uh, nothing but really respect left for the people who were there on each side. It didn't, you know, it, it didn't seem, I mean, it was definitely not adversarial. Like I think, you know, they were all, they were all over what it was that they had been through. Whatever it was they had, had inflicted upon each other, you know, in this other world, this world of war, you know, did not transcend over into the respect that they had for one another on on the playing field so yeah it was great and the resolution that you hope for so you you mentioned that you're going to talk to rich about getting this piece up what are you doing now i mean it sounds like you're bringing some of these things back right well that that's the goal um i you know i mean all along that I felt like, and, and Richard and I have spoke about this just endlessly is that, you know, I mean, the end result, if, if all this material sits on tape in his garage and he and I die, it goes away. I mean, it's kind of like those family pictures that everybody thinks are so important. You know, at the end of the day, you save a hundred of them. So if, if between, you know, with this website, I hope that over the course of, you know, maybe like the next 10 years of my life, if I can, if I can develop something to get, get many of these segments up for posterity so that people can see them and know what it was we did and, and, and see the evolution of how we brought disabled sports to TV, I'll, I'll feel pretty good about that. It is a generational thing, isn't it? I'm a big fan of you stand on the shoulders of those who went before you. And we've both seen on Facebook, John Brewer does a lot of stuff with the, with the history of wheelchair racing. And I had, I had no idea. I started with a three-wheeled racer. And so, and it was, it was a short three-wheeler, but it wasn't as short as some of the, some of the ones that were effectively, because I mean, you guys started, I don't know, well, I guess you probably didn't, but some of those people started in like 50 pound Everston Jennings stainless steel wheelchairs with like inflatable front casters and, mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and going, you know, like, how can you make this go fast? But it's also, it's part of like who you are as an athlete, right? Is there's the, okay, well, this is different, but I'll race you down to the end of the hall. Like that's, yeah. that's sort of the nature of what you're going to do. 
that's, I mean, it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing is, is being able to tell that story visually that, that I'm seeing with John. And I think what an amazing story. It just looks like every time I see a picture, I feel like there's so much substance in those pictures. What's your, what's your role? Are you voicing over some more of these? Are you, are you adding, adding the, you know, the wisdom that you've gained? Well, I, I think, I, I don't think it'll ever come in the, in the form of voiceovers. I think that at the end of the day, we'll let the piece stand on itself because they, they've already been VO'd by both myself and Tony Revis. But what I am adding is, is the blog writing. And I, I hope over time, you know, I'm trying not to be long winded when I write these blogs. I try to keep it to a couple of paragraphs, but by adding the perspective of, of what I feel now about what we did then 20, 20, 25 years ago, that, that, that bridges a nice gap, you know, because my perception of what I was feeling or experiencing or doing in, in 1995 or 1996 at that games, you know, when I was covering that volleyball match, we just talked about to now, I mean, and how I'm, I'm emotionally experiencing that now is completely different. And I think that I can add something really special to, to many of these stories now that I could not have added when I was in the mix. What do you think about how the coverage has changed, how the stories, how, how more people in wheelchairs are on television now? What do you what do you think of of the current state of affairs? I think it's not bad. I uh, I, I, I I still feel you know I I love what you've done. I mean I you know I'm 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 really glad I you know I'm really glad you took over where I left off. You know I mean you you've done a great job with the Paralympics, but I can see you know I I, I don't watch every single minute, but I DVR the shows and I can see they 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 box you into a little bit of a corner from you you know what you have to say, and sometimes you wish you could say something a little differently or be a little more aggressive or or say something a little differently but when you're working for nbc you're working for nbc and they have a standard and they have an idea and sometimes we have to conform to that and i feel like sometimes that we still that we're still conforming to a degree and it doesn't mean we need to be outlandish it just means that sometimes we aren't capable or able because of the job to say what we wanted to say and you know, I felt that with London. London was the last, my last job with the Paralympics. And they flew me in last minute into uh, Connecticut to do, to do this job. And they had brought, uh, you know, a basketball specialist and a swimming specialist and a rugby specialist. And um, it just, it just felt to me like it was a little canned. And and that's fine because it is what it is. And but it's hard. Sometimes we do get boxed. It seems right is that that we want it to unfold as the competition, the, the way that the competition. But then there are time constraints, and there are, you're moving from this to that. And 
and, and and sometimes you're not getting the you're not getting the live feed. Sometimes you're getting a feed afterwards, and and, and trying to tell the exciting story. And it, it is, I think it is, it is the challenge of telling the story. It's a challenge of as it gets bigger and bigger as well, is mm-hmm. that you have more and more hours, you have more and more events, and and how do you how do you tell how do you keep a narrative that goes through all of those events and you're talking about basketball and swimming and tennis and and track and all of those things it'll be interesting to see i, I don't know i watched a i watched a diamond league event this past weekend and i i saw an event that i'd never that i'd never seen maybe i just hadn't had my eyes open but i thought it would be really interesting to see this on the on the track for wheelchairs they had they had co-ed relays so they had like like two by two. They had one that was two by two by four hundred. Oh, nice! So two people on the team. One did a four hundred, then tapped up, you know, then passed the baton to the other who did a four hundred, and then a four hundred. And it would be really interesting because because one, it gives you perspective. I think that's one of the biggest challenges within Paralympic coverage is to be able to create a perspective that people can understand. Running, they sort of understand it, but you know. It's kind of like if somebody's running a 327, 1500, like people can't understand that. They have no idea, you know, what that's like. And then in the wheelchair, if you're getting a, you know, what, a, a 250, 1500 or something like that, that's even less comprehensible. But to create some of those perspectives, it would be really interesting. I realize that we're trying to limit events, but at the same time, it'd be interesting to add some of those events that could kind of create that because you know that there are some women out there who are who are just as fast i mean the tatiana mcfadden's the uh you know some of these some of these oh women. my god chris I, this uh this uh swiss gal manuel Shar. i mm-hmm. mean she's she's doing stuff i mean like absurd you know i mean for if if i had i don't i don't have a personal best of 127 but she does you know <laughs> but 127 but no, for the marathon yeah i know but it but it's just crazy for us to sit here and have this conversation and say you know when we're talking about times uh you know guys like daniel romanchuk who have uh who have eclipsed you know an hour and 18 minutes for 26 miles that's just absurd that means they they have to have average 20 21 22 miles an hour over the course of over the course of a 26 mile road race that's 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 just incredible to me and uh i i i do like that we are making more and more advances and and we're going faster and faster and just getting better in general. Hey, you know, at, at the end of the day, disability is never going away. It's just, it's just what it is that we're going to make out of this. And uh, I think, I think in general, when, you know, the, the, the takeaway for me, be it TV or be it sports is that I've had a good time with my life, man. You know, I mean, I just really have. And uh, I mean, this has been a blast, you know, towing the line at the Boston Marathon, holding a microphone at the LA Marathon. This just living life, man. You know, I, you know, you're disabled and I'm disabled. We have wheelchairs, <sighs> smallest part of my life, buddy. It really is. That seems like a great place to end. I mean, this, this, this podcast is is mirroring our educational program, which really is about the labels, the limitations that we can put on ourselves. And 
you know, it's easy enough to say, hey, that wheelchair is a limitation, but it sounds like it's taken you a whole lot of places you would not have gone before, which is the goal of life, isn't it? I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, it, you know, lay, laying there in the hospital bed, feeling that despair that we all felt uh, when when these moments happened to us. Uh, you know, they they all they all get washed away, Chris, when you make a full fruitful life. And in order to do that, you got to be well rounded, and you got to be able to to put it on the line and take that chance. If you don't take that chance, then you never get anywhere. And uh, we took that chance and look at the lives we've had. And if I could, uh, you know, if I could share with anybody to, you know, what it is that I would hope for them to do with their lives, it would be take a chance. Because, you know, if you don't, you're just going to sit around and, 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 and not enjoy your life. And, uh, and we, we, we got one. They're pretty short. Enjoy it. And I know I have and I know you have, too. And if you take one chance, it makes it easier to take the next chance, doesn't it? Undoubtedly. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's really the name of the game, you know? I mean, just, just climb, at, climb out of the hospital bed and take one chance. Go, go to school. Try something. Do, do anything. And, uh, you know, I'm hardly a guy who likes cliches, but you have to be afraid to, you can't be afraid to fail because you, you will. I mean, we will, we do, you know, it's just, I mean, it's life is, life is not always about success. I mean, that's what the ultimate goal is success, but you got to take that chance, take a chance. Great message, Bob. Thanks so much for everything that you've done to be a trailblazer, both as an athlete, as a commentator, and, and also in continuing to tell that story. Our lives are are never over and the opportunities to expand somebody else's life. They're, they're always there. So thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for joining us. Hey, absolutely, man. And, and best to you, Chris. It's, uh, it's great to see that you're, uh, you know, you're carrying the baton and, and keep it up. You're doing a great job, buddy. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you to all of you for who are joining us. If you didn't get a chance to watch the whole episode, you can go to the One Revolution website tomorrow. It'll be there. It's archived there. Watch for Bob in a regular podcast. It'll be on YouTube. It'll be on Spotify. It'll be on Apple. The greatest compliment that you can pay us is to like what we're doing, to follow us, to tell your friends. So we are here every, every Wednesday night. So please come and join us. We'll have another great guest tomorrow. But Bob, thanks a ton. Keep up the great work and hope to see you in person soon. Peace and love, man.